Mark Graben and Jamie Flinchball are two guys drinking whiskey while chatting about lean ideas, experiences, and news. Let's hope they hold their liquor because they're not holding back on sharing their opinions. It's time for Lean Whiskey, Lean Talk with a Fun Spirit. Hey, it's Mark Graben and Jamie Flinchbaugh here, episode two of Lean Whiskey. Jamie, how's it going? Uh, going great. Had a good weekend. Well, good. So it's Sunday night when we're recording this. The weekend's over. We're going to have one more whiskey and, and talk about all kinds of lean topics today. So I hope you all, as, as the listeners, thanks for listening. Pour yourself a drink and join us. Well, I mean, I guess not if you're at work and not if you're driving and not if you're on a treadmill, but... If you happen to be sitting home in, in the in an evening listening to us, pour pour uh, a little something and, and join us. So um, we want to thank everybody who listened to the first episode, everyone who subscribed and, and sent comments, and it was really nice to hear, right, Jamie? Oh, we had. I mean, I had people stop me in the hallways. I had you know text messages and emails, and of course the comments we got on on LinkedIn, et cetera. It was I was I was actually. Uh, surprised. I mean, I know we're kind of doing this just to have fun, but I, I was really pleased that folks were listening in and, and enjoyed what they heard. Yeah. So we're doing it again. We're going to give it a shot here. Um, pun, I guess pun intended at this pun point. Intended. Yeah. But, Can't uh, avoid it at this point. Yeah. So before we get into lean topics, what have you been up to lately, Jamie? Well, as I said, I had a good weekend. Uh, we had a, a soccer tournament. So I've been coaching soccer for a long time. Uh, long, long day. It was a gone 12 hour day, uh, three games on Saturday. And the, the boys worked super hard, played some some pretty soccer that that people came up and commented on. Even when we didn't win, they they commented on how we looked. And then we had a, another game today, a league game where we were shorthanded and uh, came from behind. Uh, uh, hard working game that ended up in a route in our favor. But had to had to do a lot of work to get there and then and then capped it off tonight um tomorrow my wife is speaking at lehigh's graduation uh tomorrow morning oh wow tonight tonight was a dinner at the president's house so um hung out with all the distinguished guests that are speaking uh and it was just a, a a fun conversation i sat next to the chairman of the university and uh we had a we had some fun fun conversation so it's uh it's been a great weekend well, good. How about yourself? Well, uh, it's a weekend at uh, at home in, uh, in Texas, just kind of relaxing, but hitting the road uh, again this week, uh, going to Boston and doing a workshop there um, about about my book measures of success. So that's one of the things I've been traveling around for. Uh, I was in Chicago area in Winnipeg. Um, I'm doing the workshop again at the Lean Healthcare Transformation Summit in June. Hopefully, maybe some listeners uh, are are coming to that. So that's one of my definitely one of my favorite events of the year. It's in Washington D.C. And since this is Lean Whiskey, or I should emphasize the whiskey, it's Lean Whiskey. Yes. Uh, there is a an amazing whiskey bar in Washington D.C. called the Jack Rose Dining Saloon. So hopefully, I'll have a chance to go there again. Excellent. Well, I'm down there in September for a, uh, a conference, National Association of Corporate Directors. So I'll have some time there and I will have to remember that name uh, yeah. for when I go down. Yeah. So when, kind of going back now into 
the whiskey segment, what are we drinking? You went to Kentucky recently. Yeah, so last week, I only just got home Friday. Um, and so I was there on, on business, but I, I did get a couple hours to, uh, to head out to Glens Creek Distilling. And um, so, so this is the closest thing to actual lean whiskey. Um, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and it, is, it is founded by David Meyer, who's uh, well known as the author of the Toyota Wayfield book. He's a former group leader at Toyota uh, in Kentucky. And, um, you know, really not just one of my favorite books about lean, uh, but or about Toyota, but also about lean. And I've recommended this book to, to, to numerous folks. Yeah. I mean, it's a book I've liked, um, quite a bit. And, um, that was really, I, I did a podcast interview with David talking about that one. And, and there's so much practical detail in that book. You know, one, one thing that comes to mind, there was a diagram in the book that I've cited and modified um, in the healthcare settings where they talk about three levels of Kaizen. You know, it's not just the big Kaizen projects and it's not just Kaizen events or A3 problem solving in that middle range. There's the, you know, in the, in the diagram, there are a handful of really big bubbles. There's uh, more of the small or more of the medium-sized bubbles. And at the bottom are all the hundreds and hundreds of small um, Kaizen's. And, and I think that diagram illustrates it's not Kaizen events or quick and easy Kaizen or two second lean or whatever you call it. This all fits together. Yep. Yeah. And it, 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 it was a, you know, a really not just a blend of theory and practice, but it was, it was really more a, a, an application book, right? That's why I call it the field book. Um, mm-hmm. But but enough theory to make sense of the practical application. But it, the centerpiece was definitely practical application, and, yep. and and certainly got to see him applying that, uh, especially different levels of kaizen to uh, uh, to the distillery. Um, and so I don't know exactly when he started Glens Creek Distillery, but um, I think it's, it's just it's within the last couple of years. Okay, I mean it's it's. I know he's been doing it for longer because he, you know, obviously he's, he's some of these bottles are, have been aged. Um, but uh, uh, it's on the site of the old, old Crow distillery. A defunct shut, distillery. Yeah. Defunct distillery. You know, they shut it down when Jim Beam bought old Crow and they moved all production to the Jim Beam factory in the, I believe the mid eighties. Um, and, and uh, you know, I don't know if, Anything's been done with the property since then, but it certainly looks like nothing's been done with the property since since the mid 1980s. Yeah, when when I was there, uh, I visited Dave and and the distillery last July 2018, and I think he was still just taking inventory of all the different projects and renovations and and things. It's it's quite. I mean, it goes back to the late 19th century, I think, one of the original buildings. It wouldn't surprise me. And the barrel houses are, are super old and you can see some old, old uh, uh, distilling pots and water tanks and all sorts of other other crazy stuff. And it's right next to a creek, hence Glens Creek. But yeah. there's a natural spring there that that's actually where the where the water comes from. Um, and uh, so I, I have you know, I've I've known Old Crow. It used to be you know, a century ago was one of the premier. Uh, premier whiskeys and it's definitely dropped down a few shelves to to the bottom 
Um, but but this the, the sort of I don't want to call it his main product, but maybe it's the highest volume is what's called OCD number five, which stands for he, he argues it stands for all sorts of things. Cause yeah. Can, but Not but uh, legally, he doesn't want to say it stands for Old Crow Distillery, right? No, he pro- probably doesn't. Um, but uh, but that's that's certainly, uh, you know, the, the history behind their location. So this is OCD number five. Uh, so I was able to to buy a couple bottles and bring them home. And um, I just cracked one of them open. Um, As did I. Join my first glass. <laughs> you, that is your first sip out of the bottle. First sip out of this bottle. So, yeah. Um, yeah. and I hadn't had it until I, you know, I, I went to visit and I got a small, small tasting. So I, I of course followed him since he got started. Um, and, and we actually kind of joked about waste and value add because every bottle is hand labeled, not just, yeah, not just putting the label on, which is, but. But writing on it, the bottle number, the barrel number, the proof, and of course he was he was nice enough to to sign it as well. And we joked whether that was a wasteful task or a value added task. And I argued since customers appreciate it, it's a value added task. Yeah, I agree. I agree. The um, now, did he fill the bottle for you right before you bought it? Uh, well, he was in the middle of. When I walked in, he and, and actually a former client of his, when he was a consultant, were busy running through a, a batch of bottling. So um, I, I'm pretty sure it came out of that that group, uh, uh, but it wasn't actually filled just for me. Um, yeah. But 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 that's that's okay. <laughs> was, uh, there was there was an, another one he um, sold me that he did bottle uh, just for me. So, you know, for people who don't, you know, uh, people listening, if they're listening to Lean Whiskey here, probably know something uh, about the process, but, you know, it's aged for years generally in um, oak barrels. And that is a batch, but arguably that's a value added product because the, the, the whiskey, you know, the OCD number five that we're drinking, it's a very dark cola color and that color comes completely from the wood when we see david distill it there it it's of course it's clear right yeah it's 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 clear going into the barrel and it comes out and this is this is some of the richest looking uh bourbon i've ever seen and i'd have to say some of the richest tasting bourbon i've ever seen and that's good for some tasters and probably not good for others but um you know, and he doesn't cut it with water as some do. So right. when, when it comes out of the barrel, it goes into into a bottle. Um, but I have a, a barrel number 41 and bottle number 160 uh, running at 113 proof. Yeah, and I've got barrel 23, bottle 68. Um, yeah, it's a 56.6% alcohol by volume. It's fairly high, but it's uh, it's very drinkable. Uh, oh, very very drinkable. Um, and, you know, it's not a a, a guzzling whiskey. Um, and, and I'm I'm having trouble imagining it. Not that I really ever mix a drink, but uh, using it as a base for a mixed drink. I'm sure it's it's good, but there's so much flavor in it already. Yeah, I can't imagine how you how, how you do anything to it to make it taste uh, it, not just 
better, but a whole lot different. So I, I, I right. think it really is meant to be drank straight as uh, out of the bottle. As yeah. As and, you know, I guess all you could do is experiment and see. And, you know, kind of that makes me think of the distillery. And, you know, David had um, standardized work posted. There are different stages in uh, the whiskey distilling and production process. So he's trying to be, you know, standardized and, and not make mistakes that would ruin a batch. But you know, there, I, I felt there's this real strong spirit of experimentation and Kaizen, like structured experiments with the process and the product. And both of those things matter. Like going back to your soccer um, discussion, you, you're, you're looking at the soccer process, even though they didn't win the game, the process was good. Right, right. And um you know, I'll just picking up on the soccer bit. With one game we did lose, we 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 won two, we tied one, we lost one. Game we lost, uh, we kind of had a problem to solve, right? We had we faced a really really good center back, and everything we knew how to do, he was able to 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 thwart. And it was, and I kind of explained to the boys, they gave you a problem. Our job is to solve that problem. And and you get the sense that that David approaches this. You know, one of the simplest definitions I use for lean is. A, a passionate pursuit of understanding cause and effect. Yes. And, and, and it's, you know, it's not about five S uh, it's not about, you know, writing standard work. It's about understanding cause and effect. And if those things are the cause to produce a different result, then that's what you do. And he, you know, he, he will explain to you the, 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 the inputs and what matters and why he's done what he's done. And, and, you know, it's kind of a moving target, um, but but he's he's willing to willing to go deep enough to understand what what really is working as he as he works to perfect his his pursue the perfection of his product. Yeah. yeah and, and David gets that as a former Toyota guy. Like I, I think to another former Toyota uh, person from Canada, Pascal Dennis, who's written a number of good lean books like working with him you know, some years ago, he really emphasized the idea um, I, and I, I hear people say like, oh, we, we, we found the root cause. OK, well, how did you find the root cause? Well, we talked about it. Right. Like, well, like what Pascal taught me is that you have a hypothesis of a root cause. Now you need to go do some sort of experiment in the process and make sure you understand with your countermeasure the cause and effect relationship. So there's that suspected root cause. There's a suspected countermeasure. All you can do is try it and see what happens and either deepen that understanding or challenge yourself. No, we don't understand cause and effect. Let's, let's keep investigating. Right. And that's, you know, what's difficult is, you know, when you have a product that has to mature for, you know, you're counting it on years instead of months or days or hours, um, you know, your, your hypothesis might take a while to be uh, proven true or not. Um, and, and, and so you get the sense he's really trying to look at, you know, what comes out of each stage of the process and, and compare it at that point, understand the, uh, the, the differences of, of, you know, different techniques. And, and again, really truly understanding cause and effect in the process. And this is, we talked about this in the last podcast, where do you start? Well, you start with need. You don't automatically start with a particular tool. You start with need and that's definitely his approach. He's starting with need. Where does where does he need to focus? Yeah. So maybe with that, we're going to transition. I think we're going to cover two news stories today. 
Um, the one, the one that Jamie suggested, or I'm, I'll throw it to you by asking. Larry Culp has been getting started as GE's new CEO. Where, where, where does, where does he get started? Yeah. So, so Larry Culp, uh, you know, joins, joins GE, and, and GE is famous and proud of their history of developing managers internally, and that means yeah. there's always been a long line of successors lined up, ready to go. And so this is a long first time in a long time that they've brought in a CEO from outside the company. And it just happens to be from a similar company in terms of construct, but very different, Danaher. Um, so, so Larry Culp basically comes in as the longtime CEO of Danaher, one of the most storied U.S. companies that that, you know, around from a lean standpoint. And and comes into a company with a very mature way of doing things, whether it's good or bad. It's just mature. It's the GE way. Um, and he's you know, he's got a tremendous track record uh, with Danaher. He truly, you know, Danaher business system wasn't something he created, but it was something he cultivated. Mm-hmm. And um, and and so the immediate question I got emails the day it was announced going, hmm, this is interesting. What does this mean for for GE and for Lean at at GE? And, uh, you know, what's what, what's very interesting is you know, he's not going to go around and coach every facility and every leader. So what does he do as the CEO to bring a little bit of the Danaher business system with him? Yeah. Well, you know, as the headline says, they call him the production nerd who could just transform GE. So a couple guys, you know, we're, we're MIT guys, I guess, you know, having more nerds running companies. uh, I don't know how his personality nerd is a personality too, but he clearly (laughs) has this really deep. So here's a nerdy thing though. Like when you get into something, you really get into something, you know, the article calls him a true TPS nerd. And, you know, I, I don't know Danaher real well as a company, but I worked for a former Danaher uh, leader, you know, he was my director that um, I worked under at Honeywell, uh, my last manufacturing company. I was really impressed with him. I mean, he was at, um, uh, I think, one of the day in her company's fluke in Washington State. And boy, he yes. had as good of an understanding of, uh, of, of lean and what it meant to help turn around operations. I mean, I, I, he was really, really good person to learn from. Yeah, it's, it's um, you know, certainly they've they've developed a maturity in what the Denher business system is and their ability to get it into place. Right. So this is what separates them from Toyota. Most people at Toyota didn't create the Toyota production system. They didn't build it. They they entered it and they were immersed and surrounded by it. But but, you know, it's not that Dan you know, Denher started quite a while ago, but not as long ago as Toyota. And so there's lots of people that would create the Danaher business system or because they were a very acquisitive company, they would acquire a company, send somebody in and bring the Danaher business system with them. And so that means that it it kind of also comes with a bit of a roadmap or at least a a set of lessons learned about how do you go from zero to to full on, uh, at least from the Danaher version of, of lean. Yeah. And, and they're doing a lot of turnarounds. Um, 
it through the Danaher business system. And, you know, I've heard stories, you know, they come in and basically tell the executives over the company or the division they've acquired, like, all right, this is the way it's going to be. You're going to embrace the Danaher business system. And uh, that sounds very, you know, non-negotiable. That's part of their, their business model. And you know, I think it's interesting that they call it the Danaher business system as opposed to the Toyota production system, calling it a business system versus a production system. It's funny, like Toyota has um, their, sorry, you know, their, their problem solving model that's called Toyota business practices. So right. I, you know, I, I don't know if uh, the choice well, think, of words here is, is interesting. Yeah, so I, I think Toyota's choice of words um, almost always seemed uh, almost a deliberate way to mask some of what they were doing. It certainly yeah. didn't uh, seem like a, a marketing person went about it. But, you know, a, a key central part of, of the Denver business system is how they do strategy. And and it's not it's not what makes up the Denver business system, but it's a good a good example of how they knew it was more than just making stuff. Right. And it was how they ran their business. And that starts with strategy and especially being a company that makes instruments and stuff like that. You know, there's only so many strategic choices an automaker makes. But if you're a fluke, right, uh, boy, you have so many different pathways, new markets to pursue, new products to develop, new acquisitions to make, that strategy was truly a, a big, big part of what they did. Um, and, and, and this is, you know, it's clearly a cultural transformation for uh for, for Danaher, and of course, I think it needs to be for GE, but it, it reminds me of, of the example of, you, know, you ask, what can Larry do? He's one guy. Yes, he's powerful, but still just one guy in a yeah. sea of many. The impact of Alan Mulally going from Boeing to Ford. And, you know, it took a while for the stories to emerge, but there are certainly examples where these key moments, he as the CEO established a different culture at Ford and it, it might not have truly survived when he left the company, but certainly while he was there, he created a different culture. And yeah. so you've, you've got to believe Larry can do some of the same things at GE. Yeah. Well, we're going to come back to Boeing for our second news item here, but you know, as he tries to change the culture, there was one thing in the article that was interesting. It, it the, the, the writer um, who's actually a business person, not a, a full-time um, journalist and writer, um, said that Larry Culp told him the system was, quote, common sense vigorously applied. And then he says, but yet it is much more. And I, and I was having that same thought where I think, well, when, when people say, oh, it's common sense. like Well, sometimes it only seems like common sense in hindsight. A lot of lean practices, I think, are quite counterintuitive when you're trying to change practices or change a culture. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, so I think Suzaki was the one who had said, lean is common sense after the fact. And yeah. <laughs> while, while Larry Culp says it's common sense, I think it's, he's kind of saying, you know, it's not, it's not voodoo or magic, but once you see it, it seems like common sense, but to get there, it isn't. And, and I think that's the, it's a whole lot more. Um, because, you know, you see, Folks that once they live it, once they see it, once they internalize it, you kind of go, geez, that, that, yeah, I, I should understand cause and effect 
of why I'm getting the result I'm getting. I, uh, yeah, if I don't have a standard, how do I know what result I'm going to get next time? Yeah, sure. sounds like common sense, but, <laughs> but actually facing that in advance of having to build a standard or study a problem, that's not, that's not an easy, that's not always common sense uh, for anybody. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll have a link to that article in the show notes. It was from marketwatch.com, and um, hopefully people will go check that. Yeah. Do, do you want to you want to move on and talk a little more about Boeing? Yeah, I, I think it's it's uh, you know I'll just I'll just end saying that I I think it's going to take us two or three years to really say uh, to to even give Culp a grade on on GE, but I think it's going to be an interesting story to watch unfold, perhaps in front of our very eyes. Yeah. Um, so speak. Speaking of unfolding in front of our very eyes, you have a much more recent article that focus on, uh, and this time it is about Boeing. Yeah, so this was an article. It was in the the New York Times, and the headline read, you know, boy, headline gets your attention. Uh, Claims of shoddy production draw scrutiny to a second Boeing jet, and the subheadline says workers at a 787 Dreamliner plant in South Carolina have complained of defective manufacturing debris left on planes, and pressure to not report violations. So there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, I did a blog post about it comparing what some of the allegations about Boeing, at least, to some of my experiences at General Motors, some of the experiences I've seen or heard about in hospitals where, you know, one, one thing that jumped out at me, and it was, uh, maybe I'll just leave it for the blog post, there's always a spokesperson ready to say things like, quality is always our highest priority. and the question is, boy, does reality live up to that? You know, because the allegations here, you know, said there was, uh, you know, in the article, it said a culture that often valued production speed over quality, spokesperson disagrees. And it says facing long manufacturing delays, Boeing pushed its workforce to quickly turn out Dreamliners, at times ignoring issues raised by employees. So, you know, it's the other thought I'll add, you know, I want to hear your thoughts, Jamie, but you know, I don't know the inside at Boeing and, and there are, I mean, there's often two sides to a story, but, you know, boy, you know, based on experiences in other organizations, I would tend to believe that some of these ugly allegations are quite possible because I've seen similar dynamics um, at other, you know, when, when other places when there's this pressure, unfortunately, for speed, throughput, flow, and I've seen leaders make bad decisions that really hurt quality. Yeah, and so, you know, I, the first thing I saw when I read the article, and it both impressed me and concerned me, was was that, you know, they said they had interviewed hundreds of people and read thousands of emails, and I thought, boy, if, if you can't find somebody that has something negative to say after doing all that, you know, then, then that would be the story of the year, right? So if, yeah. Of course, if you dig deep enough, you're going to find bad stuff. It's just inevitable, um, especially with something that that complex. So, so part of me wanted to issue a bit of empathy for for the situation, and of course, sure. they trot out their uh, you know their spokesperson to say, of course not. Um, but but there's certainly you know some when you when you hear. The pattern wasn't just, okay, fix it quickly and, and admit it never happened or never admit yeah. it happened. It, it, it definitely didn't seem to be that kind of reaction. And I think you're going to have problems in manufacturing. It's, it's, I don't know exact number of parts that go to, together for a Dreamliner, 
I know it's less than it is for their other models because it was designed that way, but it, it's, it's, you know, it's got to be over a million, um, at least I think. You're going to put that many parts together and have that many people working in a factory, you're going to have some problems. That's inevitable. The question is, what do you do when you have those problems? Right. And it, it certainly That's seems true. like there's a pattern of people bringing up issues and then either a lack of reaction or negative reaction to to that right. problem. So problems certainly right. weren't welcomed as opportunities. Yeah, and in the article, um, yeah, I see what you're saying about you know you could find problems anywhere, but there you know there have been lawsuits filed, there have been you know numerous whistleblower complaints. So you know I think this is not a case of, of New York Times um, just digging up something where there weren't already um, you know public issues because of the lawsuits and um, the, the 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 complaints. I mean it's really troubling to hear about some of the allegations. Yeah, and, and you know some of some of what they said. They, I mean, I don't want to say they embraced the problems, but they 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 kind of indicated, oh yeah, yeah, we're we're really good at dealing with this this kind of stuff. And um, you know, I, I'd remember I'd see companies that would say oh, we're fantastic at moving really fast, make decisions on the fly. Um, but it, it it's what that really means is we're comfortable with operating that way. We're used to it. It's I don't doesn't mean that it's a good thing. And there's there's a certain part of this where you get the sense that Boeing is is saying, uh, sure, you know these things are are aren't great, don't sound great, but we're really good at operating that way. Uh, it's it's kind of it's almost like people say, yeah, I'm really experienced drunk and I've gotten pretty good at it. It's not exactly a, a good argument to make. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, this is going back 20 years ago now. Um, it would be 20 years ago next month I joined Dell Computer coming out of MIT. And one of the attributes that they looked for and trumpeted, um, you know, they said, you know, people need um, to be good at dealing with ambiguity, which unfortunately oftentimes was an excuse when when we would try to point out what we thought were better ways of doing things, you almost get slapped back like, well, you need to be better at dealing with ambiguity. But I'm like, but we could reduce some of that ambiguity. Right. Yeah. And certainly ambiguity is real and people do need to be good at it. But but yeah, it's you know, hey, we're trying to we're trying to minimize the variation. We're trying to reduce the ambiguity. Um, and so it's like, yeah, I don't want to don't bring me data. Right. I, I'm just you got to be better at winging it is really what they're saying. Yeah. And and uh, it's obviously not going to be not going to be the the best way to operate. Um, but things get pretty serious here. I mean, they, they they've it's not just a whistleblower. Right. And that's where you hear a single whistleblower and you're like, OK, this person was disgruntled. Disgruntled. Yeah. Right. They want to make revenge. But it's it's numerous whistleblower complaints. And then. Lawsuits based on retaliation from being a whistleblower, which, of course, is illegal. Um, so, you know, that, that it said in the article, a former quality manager, which you know, is one of those positions that I like to believe is filled with integrity. Yeah. certainly can't always be true. Uh, Mr. Burnett, who filed a whistleblower complaint with regulators, said he was he had repeatedly urged his bosses to remove the shavings, but they refused and moved him to another part of the plant. And. And that, you know, that last part, right, is is 
part of the concern. It's like, oh, they didn't even want to fire him at that point. They were just mm. going to say, yeah, we're going to move you over here so we don't have to deal with, yeah. with at least yeah. your complaint, whether it was you or the reality of the complaint. We don't want to deal with your complaint. And so we're just going to move the problem aside. Yeah, you know, there's the internal conflict, but then I thought one other aspect of the story was interesting was, you know, it's not just the problems they were finding or the risks they were finding in the factory. There were escapes, if you will, of, of, of defects getting the customers. So, you know, the, the one quality manager talked about finding chewing gum holding together part of a door's trim. So they're they're catching those things or but at some point, if, if they're pressured to ship stuff real quickly, um, the, the, the article talked in particular about Cutter Airlines and employees at the factory um, in North Charleston. They were forced to watch a video from the CEO of Cutter Airways, who was kind of chewing out the company for not being transparent about delays and, and, and the damage and problems. And I could only think how demoralizing and, and unfair that is to subject all of the workforce to that kind of, you know, video chewing out. Um, that maybe that was a video that just should have been viewed by the executives. Or or, or at least came along with a, uh, hey, we own this, right? Uh, a little uh, a little mea culpa on their part says, yeah, we, we, we've heard him. We're going to try to do better uh, and we're going to share it with you in that spirit. Then then maybe it's OK. But. Um, but yeah, certainly, you know, yeah, I can't imagine with a product that complex that they get all foreign debris, but having it, you know, dangerously close to the, to the wiring beneath co cockpits, uh, having stuff near that loose bolts near, near, uh, uh, engines. I mean, those are things that, that certainly can be difficult. And I, I get I get not always responding to the customer immediately because you might think they're they, they aren't really clear on what the what the problem is. But um, I, I remember a story of a you know, experience with a, a client of mine. Uh, they were a food processor and I won't go into who they are exactly or what food they were doing, but they would produce mm -hmm. stuff, you know, at, at stage one, say, and they'd put it in big vats. And they would send some of those vats on to customers who would do further processing of that product. And they would send more product to their internal factories who would do further processing. So same product, doesn't matter which goes where, but some of it's going external, some of it's going internal. So what would happen is that external customers kept complaining because they were leaving shovels inside of the vats, right? They kind of needed that to, to help organize the materials. And they said that, that that can't be true because if it were true, then the, <laughs> our internal factories would complain too. And so we, we actually went to the other internal factories and said, hey, you know, the external customers are saying this is happening. Shovels are left inside the equip the, the, the vats, but you guys haven't complained. And they said, no, we haven't complained. We're getting free shovels. <laughs> So, so they they had this problem all the time, but they didn't want to say yeah. anything because they were kind of benefiting. Um, but this is, you know, the whole point is it's not easy to get the ground truth, right? Cause and effect again. Mm -hmm. And yeah. um, what is the true condition? Uh, just because you haven't heard about it through the grapevine or through your internal people doesn't mean that it's not true. And that's, yeah. I think, taking these these claims seriously 
and exploring them firsthand, right? Go to the Gemba or whatever phrase people want to use, I think is what is certainly called for once you start to hear them. Yeah, and you know, I kind of I think my final thought on this, I, I tend to look at Boeing or you know, they they're held up so often as one of the non-Toyota exemplars of lean manufacturing. So I would tend to hold them to a higher standard than I would have held General Motors to in 1995 when I worked there. And too many of these 2019 Boeing stories reminded me way too much of 1995 General Motors. And I, whether it's fair or not, I, that's disappointing. Yeah, and, and I, I guess, again, as in the spirit of uh, allowing the facts to, uh, to bear themselves out, if we can ever get now that now that serious consequences are at at play and, and lawsuits, et cetera, we may never hear all the true facts. Um, yeah. But but certainly you can you can get a sense of patterns. And uh, we hope that if it is a dip in in their corporate culture and and system of work, that it's a temporary one and they can they can climb back up to the pedestal that they've, they've been on many times. Yeah. So I'm gonna call a little whiskey timeout because I've poured uh, a little splash of a second whiskey from David Meyer and Glen, Glen's Creek Distilling. This is, I think you have this one too, Jamie. I'm not trying to rush you, but you've, you've got <laughs> a, a release he calls Cafe Olay, right? Yep, I have, uh, again, I have barrel number two, so still, Still pretty fresh. You probably have barrel number one. I've got barrel number one, bottle 11. <laughs> okay. Wow. You're really early, and I have uh, bottle 143. And and this is a, a smaller bottle because it it I think it it's a uh, more difficult production um, and and very unique. So I anyway. yeah very limited and and I uh, since barrel number two. <laughs> um, so I, I poured myself a fairly, fairly large first pour. So I haven't gotten to this yet, but I did taste it at the distillery. And uh, wow, it's it's rich and, and uh, flavorful. It's got a strong kind of coffee note to it, which is, I, I think he's, he's calling it more of a Spanish spelling, Cafe Ole, O-L-E, instead of a French Ole. But yeah, it's a much lighter color, but it's it's um, it goes to show color doesn't always indicate uh, flavor or richness or, you know, it, it, this is a very, very unique whiskey. So I, I think David's right. doing a great job with, uh, with his distillery. Yeah, no, and this is, yeah, definitely stands out as, as something um, not just different than the OCD number five, but, but yeah, I want to say different than any other whiskey I've had. I know, you know, that coffee flavor is, is there very purposefully and, uh, uh, by design. But, yeah, and, um, and, I, and I forget the detail. It's from the grain. He hasn't added flavoring. It's not a liqueur with added coffee. No, it's just no, the it's, way it's, it's from the, the way it distilled. Yeah, and I and I got to taste a few of the grains, you know, fresh, right, right out of the right out of the bag. Um, and there's definitely different grains that go into this um, uh, that that I I couldn't do justice by trying to remember or. Uh, or written enough in the bottle for me to describe, but it's definitely a, the, the difference here is in the grains. It's, it is yeah. not, um, 
uh, just dumping a little coffee liqueur and yeah. or coffee flavoring and, and call it something different. Uh, but boy, it's it's got a it's got a very unique uh, very unique taste. Yeah. So um, one of the final things we're going to do here today, you know, we're always or at least the plan. As long as they keep coming in, we're going to take reader questions. Sometimes this is called the mail bag, which this was emailed or posted on LinkedIn. So calling it mail bag is kind of outdated. But yeah, um, I can't imagine that we're going to get, you know, actual physical mail with questions <laughs> on it. That, definitely that would be not, not, definitely not a bag full of questions. That's a lot of definitely, definitely not a bag full of uh, questions. We hire people to open them up and read them. But um, yeah, so from the mailbox and this is a quest, question from from Bruce and you know, I, I knew you'd appreciate this because you're a huge uh, Deming yeah. fan and, and have gone deep to study Deming. Uh, but the question is this, uh, Deming point number 10, so work standards or quotas as an impediment to improvement and productivity, but many lean efforts involve posting required hourly production quantities uh, based on both demand and tack time at the point of production. Uh, so that's just the lead in. The question then is, is it possible to have a system of production that does not put some expectations of production numbers in front of workers. So what's your first thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I guess, I mean, it, certainly it would be possible. Um, I don't know if it would be a good idea. I mean, I think, you know, there, there's, I understand Deming's point that when, when it becomes a do it or else quota, that gets really dysfunctional. But, you know, uh, I think, you know, a Toyota culture or a lean culture would say a standard is just a plan, that a standard isn't a problem. You know, if management reacts badly to the gap, if they're just pressuring people, then those standards could get really dysfunctional. I saw a lot of that in my first year at General Motors. But then when we got uh, a new, you know, Toyota trained plant manager, you know, the, this, the, the gap between the plan of 92 engine blocks per hour and the fact we only made 63, that's just a fact. And it's just, um, it it is what it is. And it's something you work together on. So, I, I mean, I think, I mean, you know, maybe I think Deming was reacting to a lot of these old GM type cultures where standards were almost always really dysfunctional. Yeah. And I certainly from that time frame, there's a lot of uh, just basically meet the standard, meet the quota or else. And, you know, you'll get very little breaks. I, I, I'm from New York, Pennsylvania uh, originally, which uh, long before me was at least the, uh, I believe the U.S. Uh, cigar capital manufacturing of the country. Really? Uh, not, yeah. I don't think anything high end, but, but they churned out a lot of <laughs> a lot of cigars, and and the people rolling them were expected to hit a certain quantity, and they had that was the process. The only process or management system that existed was a number. That was where it stopped. And I actually met somebody who was a a young girl who would this is a long time ago, but uh, her job was as a young girl to go around and bring water to the people. Uh, who were rolling cigars and, and, you know, had a ladle and basically they didn't stop working. She kind of spooned them some water and they kept, they kept working. That's, yeah. I, I believe, you know, when the, the quota is the management system, that's when you have a problem. 
Um, if the if the hourly quantities and the standards is isn't about a quota, but about information and it tells you about normal and abnormal and helps you find anomalies right. uh, so that you can then solve those anomalies, uh, then it's useful information. And so I, I don't think it's um, uh, as the person is saying, it's it's posting Posting the hour, uh, hourly production quantities isn't inherently lean or non-lean uh, right. by itself. It's what you, it's how you use it that matters. And I think using it to understand the process, to understand where the problems are, and then doing something about it, then it's a very lean method. Yeah, yeah. And you know, going back to the question, you know, it's Bruce kind of site stemming, talking about standards as being an impediment to improvement. So I can think of an example, though, in healthcare, where hospitals quite often have a labor productivity standard. And this is far more complex than the number of engine blocks you're making per hour. Um, this is more about, um, you know, labor hours per unit of service. And it gets, you know, it's complicated calculation, but there's a number. And far too often, managers and directors are really really pressured to not ever exceed the productivity labor hours um, uh, standard. And I, I heard somebody, I, I forget who I'm trying to give credit to here, but somebody one year at the Society for Health Systems Conference said, our daily labor productivity standard is the biggest single barrier we have to actually improving productivity. <laughs> because think what happens if you never let a manager exceed their productivity standard, there's no slack time for anyone to work on Kaizen ideas that could actually, God forbid, improve productivity. Right. And I think that's part of the catch 22 that um, I, I wish health systems weren't caught up in. Right. Yeah. And I think I, I think the whole idea of you know improving productivity, you're improving flow rate or whatever that might be. It really is getting into my, well, my favorite words is granular. And <laughs> and the reason I, I love that word is the idea is there's more information when you get down to the, the nitty gritty, right? When you get down to the details. And and so I remember an example. I was in a in a confectionery company and they bagged their product at uh, I think the equipment was made to go 59 units a, a minute. And um and so they're like, oh, we're really proud. We dialed it up to 62 hmm. and uh, and we're getting sick, you know, so we dialed it up. So we, we were, we, you know, we just run it a little faster than standard. And so I, I just got on my watch and I stood there for 10 minutes. And what I noticed is that the equipment was running so fast that every every single minute it would pause for half a beat. And it was and, and so I started doing account. I'm like, you're getting 59. Like you've turned it up to 62, but you're getting 59 and you had to get into that minute by minute granularity to find out what was really going on. And 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 that's what information is meant to do. Right. Not yeah. it's not for reports. It's for finding finding abnormalities, helping you understand cause and effect and using that type of hourly data or whatever it might be. The granular most granular you can possibly generate to find opportunities to improve. Yeah, yeah. So thanks Bruce for the question and we've got some other questions that we are going to 
uh, address in other episodes. I guess if somebody has a question, one way to get that to us would be uh, email. Um, you can email me, mark at markgraven.com. Jamie, what's your email address? Jamie at jflinch.com. And there's other ways people can find us um, online. So as we, we're, we're going to wrap up here. We have a, just a final question uh, for each of us to address here. Uh, who is the most underrated or underappreciated or unfortunately obscure lean thinker? Jamie? Yeah, so so uh, you know, there, there's probably a lot out there um, that, that just don't see the light of day and don't get as famous as as some of the others, but my one of my favorite that I really affected my thinking is uh, uh, Tom Johnson or H. Thomas Johnson, as as his name is written. Um, he, he's the author of Relevance Lost, which uh, uh, along with Kaplan, which I think was 1987. Mm-hmm. And and what was interesting is that Relevance Lost was basically saying that management accounting is no longer relevant. And and what was what was sort of fascinating to me is that they both agreed on that, right? Tom Johnson and, and Kaplan, but then they 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 went off and uh, and went very different directions, right? So so we both had to read this, and I think this is the first time I read it. I just don't remember. Um, uh, it was we, it was the only time I read it. <laughs> okay. Well, it's not it's not an easy read, right? So. But we we uh, we read it as sort of recommended reading before we went to the the MIT program, Leaders for Manufacturing, now called Leaders for Global Operations. It was on a a relatively short list of pre-reading before Mm -hmm. we went to the program. And and what was fascinating is after that, they both went different directions. So Kaplan uh, is the creator of the balance scorecard. And so he said, okay, I'm going to do better. I'm going to create a better management accounting system, basically. And that's what balance scorecard was meant to be. And that I don't want to say it was a fad, but it went pretty big there for a while and, and somewhat faded. What what Tom Johnson said and really then articulated in Profit Beyond Measure is that we have to get accounting out of management. And that's a strong statement. And I don't believe it's pragmatic, not at least in terms of today's laws and requirements, but it it shakes you to think about how would you manage without your accounting system, right? How would you get accounting out of management? Because accounting manages transactions, but work isn't based on transactions. It's based on activities, connections, and flows. And and so if we had more managers who understood process and more than they understood the accounting, we might be in a very different world. And so... Profit Beyond Measure is a book that, I mean, it used to be almost number one on my recommended reading list. It's not, again, not not the sort of the most pragmatic book, but it, it can help shape your thinking. And I, I, I think Tom Johnson hasn't been as recognized uh, for his his contributions to lean thinking as as uh, should be. Yeah, that's a so good recommendation. Uh, I'm trying. Well, I was just saying, you know, thinking about that pre-reading for MIT, I think that was quite literally the first, it was part of the batch of books, the very first things I ever ordered from Amazon.com in 1997, <laughs> when That's Amazon awesome. was nothing but a bookstore. Um, one nothing day I did scroll, book. I scrolled back through 
my Amazon order history. Um, can't believe I've been buying from Amazon for uh, going on 22 years now. Well, was that a moment of boredom or curiosity? Uh, I wonder. More curiosity. Yeah, I don't think I had to scroll through all of it. I think I could search and jump and search, search and back to the beginning. It. That's but, fantastic. Um, I tell you, yeah, uh, a, a book I wish had been required reading um, for MIT because it's actually a book from uh, MIT Press. So I, I, well, I would have said Deming. We've already talked about Dr. Deming. I, 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 I wish Dr. Deming wasn't. Um, uh, well, I, I wish he, he was more widely read by people in the quote unquote lean community. But you know, another name I'll throw out in Dr. Deming's lineage is uh, Don Wheeler, um, Donald J. Wheeler, Ph.D. Um, and I think his books just say Don Wheeler. They do. He's he's pretty he's I think he's pretty uh, he leaves the Ph.D. off. He's pretty approachable. Right. His, his, his book, Understanding Variation, um, is is one that I wish was more broadly appreciated. I mean, I've certainly, you know, took the lessons from from that book and um, incorporated them in, into my book, Measures of Success, and was personally really thrilled um, that, that Don Wheeler wrote the foreword uh, for, for that book. But, you know, over the last 20 years, I've probably, that's the one I've always recommended. If Jamie, if you were recommending Tom Johnson, I was recommending Don Wheeler. I've, I've given away dozens of, of copies of, of that book over the years. Yeah, and that's that's one that um, I, I believe I learned of Don Wheeler while at MIT, but mm -hmm. uh, if I remember correctly, but but certainly understanding variation is, you know, a, a lot of statistical uh, education, including Six Sigma training, which isn't the only way. I mean, I had stats in high school and yeah. and, and through three different degree programs. But it, the idea is doing the math is one thing, but understanding variation is different. And, and I think that was the kind of the focus of, of Don Wheeler was, you know, again, understanding variation, giving it meaning, not just doing the math, right? Because doing the math is one thing. Lots of people can do that. But having an appreciation for variation and, and its abuses as well as its benefits uh, is, a, is a whole different game. Yeah. So as uh, David Myers whiskey evolves, um, it would be interesting to study the variation from barrel to barrel and bottle to bottle. <laughs> Some of that variation well, is just makes makes it interesting. And and his argument is as many as the big houses will will claim they have a perfectly standardized process. You know, every barrel doesn't come from the same tree or from the same woods or from. You know, that, that, and that's one of the big ingredient, ingredients of flavor. So uh, yeah, there's natural variation in that grains and waters and wood. And uh, there's just inherent variation in the whiskey process. And some of that's good. Some of it's bad. But at the moment, I've gotten to catch up with you, pour a little cafe au lait, and I'd have to say it's good. It is. And as we wrap up here, so we I, I don't have an empty glass for final cheers. I, I, I've been doing little pours, I, I think, relatively. I'm, I'm drinking out of a Glencairn glass. You might hear Jamie's ice cube, large ice cube rattling around in, in his nice glass there. Yep, I, uh, I, I did. I had a hot weekend and out of the soccer field, so I felt an ice cube, which I don't do often, was, was called for, but um, it, it's in there in my nice, nice crystal glass, which was a wedding present. Yeah. 
Nice. So I want to remind everybody, for, for one, thank you uh, for listening. Um, you can find um, more information about the podcast and uh, the, the past episode, I guess in, you know, we'll say past episodes in the future. You can subscribe and learn more by going to leanwhiskey.com or you can go to leanblog.org slash leanwhiskey. Jamie's also got a page. Yep, I'm at jflinch.com slash leanwhiskey. You can also look for us um, on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify. Uh, I guess if you are listening, well, unless you're listening to this through the web page and the streaming player, you, you're probably listening to this through a podcast service. So you can search for us or click or tap, and uh, hopefully you'll want to hear more. Yeah, and please do, you know, rate us, uh, review us, subscribe to us. You know, it, it's it's not not vanity, really. This is what helps other people find us and, uh, and hopefully enjoy uh, the, the company that Mark and I enjoy together. Um, so so please do that. Rate, review, subscribe. And other than that, you know, cheers. Cheers, Jamie. Thanks for doing this again. Well, try not to make an obnoxious glug, glug, glug type sound. <laughs> yeah, I thought.